These uh, past couple weeks I've been doing some interesting reading about someone you may have heard of named Elon Musk. One of the things I, I read about him made me think maybe he's not that different from the rest of us after all. I learned that he likes posting to social media from the restroom. Like, yeah, okay, he's, he's one of us. But then if you look at his career, you also admit he's a different kind of cat. Love him or, or hate him, you have to admit that he has literally changed the world in which you have to admit that he has literally changed the world in which we live because he is a man who is obsessed with innovation. He changes the way things work. He makes things work that, that didn't work before. Some I didn't even know about. Did you know that he was one of the original creators of PayPal? Which changed the way many of us pay for things. It used to be called X.com. They sold it to eBay in 2002 for $1.5 billion. That's one way he innovated in our world. What about the electric car? Many have dabbled in it, but none with the success or the magnitude which he has. Tesla, his electric car company, is now valued at about $1 trillion. He has innovated driving around the world. Then you look at SpaceX with the rockets that he's sending up. You talk about a mind that wants to innovate. You know one of his goals with those rockets one day? He wants to colonize Mars with human beings. So whatever you think about him, whatever you think about his goals, you've got to agree he is a man who is obsessed with innovation. Innovation, which leads me to the question this morning as we stand on the brink of a brand new year to live our lives here, what are we obsessed with? What is it that our thoughts most often gravitate to? What, what is it that consumes our focus, our energy, our drive more than anything else? What, what is it that, that you and I are obsessed with? I ask that question as we jump into the book of Philippians because the city of Philippi was not founded by Elon Musk, but it was shaped very much by the varying obsessions of men. I want to show you Philippi on a map, and this is small, so I apologize. You can look this up at home. It's Paul's second missionary journey, but you'll see three circles there. I want you to focus on the left white circle. That's Philippi, and today that is in what we know as Greece. In fact, you can go there and see some of the original walls of the city of Philippi. We're going to take a look at that right now with Stetson's help. Those are some of the ruins of Philippi. It's now called Philippoi, if you ever want to go to Greece and check it out. But I said it's been shaped by the obsessions of men. I want to tell you a couple of those obsessions that it's been shaped by. One of those obsessions of men is for fame. For fame. This was originally founded in 360 BC as a city known as Crenides, but that name only lasted four years because Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, came and conquered this city. And when Alexander the Great began to rule his empire, he named it 
after his father Philip so that his father's name would live on throughout history, which it still does today as the city of Philippoi. So an obsession for fame has shaped this city. That along with an obsession for wealth. There are gold mines near Philippi. It's also on a big east-west route across the Roman Empire at the time called the Via Ignatia. So those things, the, the obsession for gold and wealth have shaped the history of this city. I want to show you one more city, one more thing you can go there and see today. That's the ruins of a theater that, that are still there in Philippi. So fame, wealth. One more, an obsession with power. Jaden, our oldest son, and maybe you, Bradley, did you read Julius Caesar too? Just this year they read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, and most of you know the story. Brutus and Cassius assassinate Julius Caesar. That, that really happened in history, as you know. Well, in 42 B.C., Mark Antony and Octavius defeated Brutus and Cassius on the plains near Philippi. That led to events which brought Octavius to be who we know as Caesar Augustus. And Rome, which was once a republic, became an empire under Caesar Augustus, largely because of a battle that played out near the city of Philippi. So an obsession with power has shaped the history of this city of Philippi. But I want you to fast forward to A.D. 4950 because someone else came along with a very different obsession. Someone else we know as the Apostle Paul. And how he got there was pretty interesting in and of itself. I want to show you that map again. And I'll tell you what the circles are, even if you can't read them. The left city, left circle is Philippi. The bottom right is Asia, not Asia that we know of today. This is more like Turkey. And the top right circle is Bithynia. So with those spots in mind, I want you to read the story of how Paul first came to Philippi in Acts 16, starting at verse 6. Paul and his team are traveling on a second missionary journey. It says they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So that's that bottom right circle. The Holy Spirit stopped them from going to Asia. Don't know what that looked like. If you just put that check in Paul's heart that no, that's not where I want you to go. But they were forbidden to go to Asia. And it says, verse 7, when they had Come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. That's that top right circle. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So twice the Holy Spirit put up stop signs. Not here, not here. Okay? Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. And Macedonia was the country where Philippi was. In this vision, he gets a man from Macedonia standing there urging Paul and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Interesting how he got there, isn't it? And I think about that, how he got there. And I think about the fact that sometimes in our lives, doors get closed. Sometimes it's that check in our spirit from the Holy Spirit that he says, no, no. Sometimes it's, it's circumstances. But I want to encourage us, and I'm encouraged by this story. When God closes doors, don't give up. It doesn't mean he's done. It doesn't mean he doesn't still have a good plan for you, maybe something you can't even imagine. He's still working, even through the closed doors. Maybe it is the Spirit giving you a check. Maybe it's circumstances. Guys, maybe you ask her to marry you, and she says no. Maybe you don't make the team. Maybe you don't get accepted at the college that you wanted to go to. Maybe, maybe you don't get the job you applied for. Maybe you don't get the answer to prayer the way you wanted it. Don't give up. God still has a good plan for his children. I think about that even as a church. Trinity and Prescott was not at the top of our list for this next season. But as we did that walkthrough on Wednesday and as I read this passage especially, people are getting excited and I'm getting excited wondering who is it that God wants us to reach during that season in Prescott? What people may, may be impacted through the ministry of the church next door during that season there? And is that why everywhere we looked in PV for now was a no, no, that no? Don't give up. Is it wrong to make plans? No, no. But we got to remember what James said in chapter 4, verse 13. He said, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. <laughs> so yeah, nothing wrong with making plans as long as we hold them with open hands to our sovereign father and say we will follow you, whether you say no or yes. So Paul got there that way. About 10 years later, he's writing this letter. Most believe under house arrest in Rome, where he also wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon under house arrest. You, you read about this house arrest in Acts chapter 28, just a couple verses, 16. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If ever there would have been a time where he said, okay, Paul, you can take a break. Stop caring so much about the gospel and the church. You're imprisoned right now, so you can take a rest. We would understand, right? But he didn't. Even under house arrest, he kept on ministering. Right? Most believe when he was writing from house arrest, the last time he had seen this church that he loved in Philippi was about three or four years earlier. And he had received a gift from them that we're going to talk about later. And he wanted to say thank you for the gift you sent to me in prison. It meant a lot. 
and to encourage them in their own struggles. But I said that he was a man obsessed with something else than those other men. I want to ask you right now, what was it that Paul was so obsessed with? Better stated, who was it that Paul was obsessed with? The Apostle Paul was obsessed with the person of Jesus Christ. He was everything to the Apostle Paul. And that's the obsession that he brought to the city of Philippi and the obsession that he writes with. I want you to see it just in the first couple verses, this obsession with Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 1, and we're going to look at the first part of this letter. Because that's what it is. It's a letter, an epistle. It's not a book so much. It's a, a letter that he sent to them. Verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, Evidently, Timothy was there near him in Rome, bringing comfort to him, working with him. But he calls them servants of Christ Jesus. Some translations come right out and say slaves of Christ Jesus. And this is something we dare not forget. Because this is the same Paul who in Romans 8 talked about our adoption in Christ, that we are adopted as sons, and what a privilege that is that we get to call him Abba, Father, but this same Paul had that balanced out in his mind with the reality that he was also a slave of Jesus Christ, something we sometimes let go of in our familiarity with our Lord. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? Jesus was his master, his Lord. And when Jesus said go, Paul would go. When Jesus said stop, he would stop. When Jesus said jump, he would say how high. He saw himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and would do his master's will. That's who wrote it. Who's it to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So you got all the saints there with the overseers and, and deacons. Let me point some out. That's not two different groups, okay? <laughs> That's important that we know that. There's not saints and overseers and deacons. He's including the overseers and deacons with the saints. But what is a saint? Someone set apart, set apart to God. And that's not just a few special people who did a miracle here or there. It is every believer in Jesus Christ when you read the New Testament letters that Paul wrote. So the slaves and, and saints, verse 2, grace to you. And peace, what's grace? Unmerited favor in Christ, right? Peace, that right relationship where there was enmity before because of Christ. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did you catch just in two verses how many times he already mentioned Jesus? Three times in two verses. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, then Jesus Christ. And if you read through this whole book, it's only four short chapters, you know how many times he mentions Christ Jesus? About 40. About 40 times. So when I say he's a man obsessed with Christ, you, you see it just in how much he writes about him. You couldn't spend five minutes with the Apostle Paul, I believe, without hearing about Christ. It's like Buckeyes fans in Ohio. You can't be around them for long before you hear about the Buckeyes. And I've heard people that have visited there and talked to me about what their impressions of all the, the coats and all the people talking about 
Coach Woody Hayes back in the day and how much we hate Michigan. And, and uh, I remember a bathroom in Columbus, Ohio, where the Buckeyes play that even had Michigan M's in the urinal. This is a city, a state obsessed. You cannot go there without, with, without hearing about their band and hang on Sloopy and the whole, the whole works. We're obsessed. We'll drive you nuts. And sometimes people think we're crazy. Well, Paul had some folks that thought he was crazy. One time, you remember in Acts, he was speaking before a Roman ruler and Herod, and one of them said to him, your learning has driven you out of your mind, Paul. He was so obsessed with Christ that there were some who thought he was crazy. He was a man obsessed with Christ. Do we share his obsession with Christ Jesus? Flowing out of that obsession with Christ, he had this gratitude, a thankfulness about his life that characterized his life and a joy. A joy, no matter what was, was going on around him. You start to see it in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now, where's he writing about joy from here? Under house arrest. Yes, and it comes up about 16 times in this book. So when Paul talks about joy, he's not talking about some pie-in-the-sky thing that only works when life is going the way you envisioned it going. It's the, the real deal, okay? Are we people of gratitude? Are we people of joy? And if we allow the Holy Spirit to search that and we're getting him saying, no, I'm, no, you're not. You're not. That's not what characterizes you. I think we go back to the first thing. Are we really obsessed with Christ? Because that's where Paul's gratitude and, and joy came from. Does it mean he was unaffected by the, the harsh realities of this world? Absolutely not. You remember when we went through Lamentations and talked about groaning? We went to Romans 8 where Paul talked about groaning. And when you read his letters, you'll see that his emotions run the gamut from, from grief to despair at, at difficult moments in his life. So he was not unaffected by the negatives, but he was not overcome, directed, or controlled by them. Yes, he was struck down at times. Yes, he was persecuted at times. But the risen Lord, whom he was so obsessed with and lived inside of him, kept that joy alive. You see this thread of contentment that runs through this book. He's content whether he's alive or dead. That, that was the, the first slide, right? 121. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Later on, we'll see that when he's in prison, and he hears some people are preaching Christ for good reasons and some People are preaching Christ to make him look bad. He's content so long as the gospel's preached. Why? Because he's not wrapped up in his reputation. He's wrapped up with Christ. Okay? He, he's content whether he's in prison or out of prison, whether he has much or little. He has this gratitude and this joy that flows out of the reality that he is obsessed with Christ. Is that still available today in our dark circumstances, believer? 
Can we still be people of gratitude and joy in dark circumstances? Can you guys read this? It says Jesus is the answer. And it's got a guy with a beard and a smiley face. I don't know if that's Jesus or my friend who wrote it. This came from a prison yard in Florence. He's in prison, like Paul was in prison, for different reasons. But he's walking with the Lord in there. And I want you to read what he wrote from a prison cell in Florence recently. He said, Christ is so radically life-giving, life-changing, the absolute game-changing, revolutionary, transforming reality that I have thirsted for my whole life. And now I drink freely. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. And then some. That's from Sam in a, a prison cell. Yes. We can still have joy and gratitude. No matter what we're walking through, believer. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Out of his obsession with Christ flowed a couple other Obsessions. He had an obsession with the body of Christ, the church. He loved the church with all of his heart, those saved by the gospel of Christ. And we're going to see that in here as he's writing to the church in Philippi. First, he's going to look back. Verse 5, Philippians chapter 1. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, He's looking back at the first day when he went to Philippi and God started to work there and people started to get saved. And he's looking back with fond memories. Today's the day I, I connect with that. It's my 24th anniversary to Carolyn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I love looking back. 24 years, the day that pretty redhead walked down the aisle and I realized, again, what a gift I was getting from the Lord. He's looking back at this church that he loved so much and remembering the beginnings. And, and as he writes this letter 10 years later, I can tell you some of the people that were likely sitting there as it was read in Philippi. How? We go back to Acts 16. And we can read about some of them. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. And I want to put a picture up of a river. That's the Ganges River near Philippi. Something special happened there. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Lydia gave her life to the Lord as a result of Paul coming there. And some have wondered, remember how God led them there with that vision of a man calling out from Macedonia? Was that a direct answer to the fact that these people were here praying. God hear their prayers and say, all right, I'm bringing Paul here to these hungry people so they can hear the life-giving gospel of Jesus. So Lydia may have been sitting there as Paul wrote this letter. 
Lydia was likely wealthy. She sold purple goods. The next person that may have been sitting there was the opposite end of the economic spectrum. You remember as Paul and his guys went out preaching, there was a girl that kept yelling behind them because she had a demon, and Paul finally cast the demon out of her. It's possible she was sitting there that day. Then we get to the working class. You remember the guys who had that little girl weren't happy about the demon getting cast out because she was predicting the future. And so they had Paul and his buddy Silas arrested and thrown in jail. And then at midnight, they're singing in there. And an earthquake happens and the jail falls apart. And the jailer is freaking out for his life because if he's found guilty of letting them go, it's his life that will be next. But Paul and Silas yell out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And you remember the conversation in Acts 16.30. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Maybe he was sitting there as this letter was read. But Paul remembered these people fondly because he was obsessed with the church of God. He loved them. There's one more that, that may have been a part of this church along the way. How many of you know that, the, that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts? Okay. And when you get to this chapter in Acts where this happens, Acts 16, 16, before the moment with Lydia, Luke writes, as we were going to the place of prayer, he includes himself there. But after this with the jailer in 1640, it says, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So do you hear what Luke's saying? We came, but they left. It sounds like Luke stayed there. And many believe this may have been Luke's hometown because there was a prominent medical school in Philippi. And how many of you know that Luke was known as the beloved physician? So there's a really good chance that Luke himself poured into this church for a season at Philippi. Whatever the case, Paul was very thankful for these people. He held them in his heart. And he looked back and thanked God for the first day, but he also looks forward for six. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He was sure that God was going to finish the work he started in those believers, that God was going to be faithful, that God does not give up on his children. And I think about that, and I, I ask us, do, do we have the same kind of faithfulness to our brothers and sisters? Look, sometimes we all go down side roads. Sometimes we have low moments. Sometimes we choose sinful paths. And sometimes we are too quick to give up on each other. Charles Swindoll said something interesting one time. He said, the church is the only outfit I know that shoots their own wounded. And I read God's mindset towards believers in Jesus Christ when he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 
I think that ought to impact the way we treat our brothers and sisters as well, whether they're doing well or whether they're struggling. Okay? He sees faithfulness of God. It's, he's going to complete it, and he's excited about it. So does that mean we, we become passive? Just kind of, oh, well, God's going to finish it, so I'm just going to chill till I get there. Absolutely not. We cooperate with that in faith. And one, one thing it brings out is prayer. If we believe God is working in the lives of our brothers and sisters, we're going to pray for that in their lives. That's what Paul does. Verse, we're going to jump to verse 8 to look at his prayer. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Do you see that? And you see this in many of his letters to the churches. He prays for these churches over and over and over. Are we praying for the people in our church? Are we praying for people in other churches around the world? What's he pray? That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We went bowling during the holiday week. And you got to watch out for those gutters, right? The doggone gutters on the side. And I think about those gutters. If you want to hit the strikes, you're tr the pins you're trying to hit, you got to stay out of the gutters, right? And there are a couple gutters in the Christian life that, that we have to, to stay out of, okay? On the one hand, he says that your love may abound more and more. So we have to avoid the gutter as Christians of being unloving, no Christian in this church should ever be characterized as unloving. If we are, we're in a gutter. We need to repent and go before the Lord. That's one gutter to stay out of. But he doesn't just say that your love may abound more and more. He says with knowledge and all discernment. So the other gutter we have to stay out of is letting go of the truth of God's word. That's the other gutter. We have to do both. Be loving Hold on to the truth of God's word. Then what happens? Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. You want to know how to make good decisions when choices come? Ask yourself, is this loving and is it true? And if you say yes to both of those, you've got a much better chance of making the right choice that is God's will and is excellent than if you answer no to one of those. Because if it's unloving or it's not true, you know the answer. It's no. Okay, you see this combination in Jesus. He came, what, full of grace and truth. You see this in the Proverbs, Proverbs 3.3. 3, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. I read that verse, I'm like, when he says, let not mercy and truth forsake you, you got to be intentional. Otherwise, these things will will run out of our lives because this world pushes in other directions. Don't let them forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. That's Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. So that you may approve what is excellent. One more thing. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You're being loving and holding on to the truth. You're going to be living in a way that pleases our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's praying for them. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.
He's obsessed with Christ. He's obsessed with his body, the church. He's also obsessed with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the lost who so desperately need the good news of Jesus. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I love that he's in prison and he's still thinking about defending and confirming the gospel. Like I said earlier, if we ever would have given him a pass, just take some time off for you, Paul. He, he's still all about the gospel. And we're going to hear more about that later in the book. Why? He never forgot the Damascus road. You read when it hit him, Acts 19, Acts 22, Acts 26. And he never forgot the Lord's call on his life to pass that same mercy onto those who need it. He says they're partakers with him. How are they partakers? They were friends. They worked with him. They prayed for him. And they gave to him. I mentioned that's how this letter got started. They sent a gift, Philippians 4.18. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They sent this guy Epaphroditus, who some think may have been an elder there. They sent these gifts, and he says, I received them, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So they helped Paul financially, but it wasn't just Paul they helped. This church also helped the poor in Jerusalem. We read of this in, in 2 Corinthians when Paul is collecting from Corinth, get, trying to get them ready to send money to help the poor in Jerusalem. He kind of brags about this church in Philippi and the giving they had done. Listen to what he says about them in 2 Corinthians 8.1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. He's obsessed with Christ. He's obsessed with the church. He's obsessed with the gospel. And underneath it all, the, the foundation, he is obsessed with the praise and glory of God. Verse 11 again, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we close this morning and we carry on into 2022, I want to ask us again, what is it you are obsessed with? What is it I am obsessed with? Is it Christ? Is it his church? Is it the gospel that the lost so desperately need? Is it the glory and the praise of our heavenly Father? Lord, Thank you. Thank you for this book of Philippians. Thank you for the very real people we got to meet today. Lydia and the 
slave girl and the jailer who were impacted by the gospel there. Thank you for Paul, who would be quick to say his obsession with you was not of his own flesh. It was your Holy Spirit and the risen Lord working in him by faith. And I pray today that as we stand on the the beginning of this new year, that you would be free, that we would open our hearts to you and say, search our own hearts. And Lord, if anything else has crept in there as an obsession where you should be, whether it's fame, wealth, power, one we didn't mention in Philippi, but sometimes comes knocking the, the obsession with comfort. Uh, Lord, may, may you go to work and help us by faith and by your spirit to put Christ on that throne, to fall in love with him all over again this year and, 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 and love your church in the easy times and the hard times, when we see eye to eye and when we don't to love the lost and realize this is not some country club here just for us. we got a job to do and a privilege to share the good news with the Lydias and the jailers and the slave girls in our world. Open our eyes and our hearts to that. Far above our own praise and our own glory and our own reputation, may we be consumed with your glory, Heavenly Father. May you lead us to follow you by the Holy Spirit in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.